I almost forgot I was teaching. I was back there just listening, going, almost taking notes. That was awesome. Um, okay, um, Britt wasn't joking last week when he said that we are going to pick up the pace. Turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 12, and we will cover verse 12 through 29 this morning. So 12 through 29, Hebrews chapter 12. We'll get right to work because there's a lot. We'll read it. And as I read it, would you please try and uh, catch the flow of what's happening here? And you're mentally catching the flow of what the author is saying. And as he's writing this sermon and letter to uh, the Hebrew Christians under persecution, try and catch the flow. We'll start in verse, verse 12, Hebrews 12, 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. And pursue peace with all people, and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many have become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and they may be burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those even who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. If so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot through with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to the Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels and to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to, the, to God the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now, this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Okay, let's pray. Lord, I am so honored and grateful to be standing in this sacred place of teaching your word, but Lord, I confess that I'm so humbled by this text. And so I ask, God, that you would speak today. This is your word, your inspired, infallible, perfect word, and these are your people that you are making perfect. And so, Lord, would your word do that perfect work in our hearts and make us more like you? Would you strengthen the areas that need to be strengthened? Would you break the parts that need to be humbled, Lord? I ask that you would anoint me and use me, Lord. This is a a daunting task, but, Lord, I trust in the power of your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we look to you, We look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith today. Speak through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to take Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12 through 29 in three different chunks. The first chunk we're going to look at is a warning. We see almost five warnings throughout the book of Hebrews, depending on which commentary you read. Five different warnings through the book of Hebrews. So we'll get another warning. And then we'll see two ways of life. And the way that the author will write these two ways of life is contrasted between two different mountains. And you, you, you probably listen to those. You have first Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. So it contrasts two different approaches to life, two ways of life through these two mountains. And a final warning, the final warning in the book of Hebrews, the very last one, we'll see at the very end. Now, first we have to remember the context. The context of the book of Hebrews is that these Hebrew Christians were shaken their whole world was being shaken under the weight of persecution. 
Persecution coming from the government. Persecution coming from their family. Even this demonic pressure and oppression that was coming from the enemy. That The writer had to say himself, remember Jesus who overcame the power of the enemy, disarming him and removing him who had, the, who had forever held people captive with the fear of death. They're fearing death. And so this writer is writing to encourage them to tell them not to quit, to keep moving forward. And we learned last week, the kind of a bomb that was dropped last week was persecution, the context of persecution and pressure and all these things that weigh around us that would almost make us want to stop. That is the discipline of God. That's, that's a, that was heavy. It's like, wait, that, that's not just the, the Rome oppressing you. That's just not the, the, your world around you oppressing you. It's also through the sovereignty, the sovereign fatherly love of God, allowing that for your good. And we saw two reasons why God does, he allows his holiness or he allows his discipline. His first is holiness and the second is peace. We see that in verse 10. We saw this last week. Verse 10, for they, speaking of our earthly fathers, they indeed disciplined us for a few days. They disciplined us as seemed best to them, but he, God, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Why does God allow discipline in our life? That we would be partakers of his holiness. He has a purpose for it. Verse 11. Now, no chastising seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So what God is doing here in his discipline, in allowing these things to happen around us is number one, he's working in our holiness and he's working in our peace. You see that? He wants us to be holy and he wants us to be peaceful. Therefore, verse 12, our text this morning, therefore, because of the discipline of God, because we're running a race, because of this, therefore, strengthen the weak hands and feeble knees. Therefore, because God is sovereign, he's working out your peace and your holiness, because God is ultimately in control, because God is allowing you to be disciplined for your holiness and for your peace. Therefore, strengthen your hands your weak hands, and your knees. Now, this is keeping here with this athletic race metaphor that we talked about last week. We're on a race. We said even last week that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses and kind of like we are today, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses with these paintings on the wall. We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. We were to lay aside every weight of sin. We, we learned last week that they would often just compete in the nude. So nothing would impede their, their running and their, uh, and their race. Nothing would get in their way. They would throw everything else aside. And then they would look to the goal, to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So keeping with this race metaphor, he says this. Run this race with strengthened hands and strengthened knees. Now, is anyone else in here not a runner like me? Like, just not a runner. Like, you, you see people running and you see them smiling when they're running. And they have that, that watch that tells everything about their body when they're running. And they're running in like mile six and they're smiling and you want to trip them or, or something like that. And you're like, I, I'm just not a runner. We would vacation here uh, before we moved here. We would stay this place on Second Beach right by Sandyland, right, right down here on the beach. And in the mornings, sometimes people that are not runners, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you get this whim where you're like, I want to run. You don't know where it comes from. You wake up, you're like, I want to run today. So I, I, I felt that way. I woke up. The beach was there. It was sunny. I'm like, I'm going to run today. So I get out, and God even actually taught me this spiritual lesson here. I get out, and I start running from Second Beach, and I get right by the campgrounds. I don't know, 500 yards. And it seems like everything is against me, right? The sand is against me. My shoes are against me. My clothes, for some reason, are starting to itch me. Have you ever had this happen? Like, you're running, you're like, why are my clothes itching? And everything, the sun, the wind, everything. And I just want a, to quit. And so what happens is, what's the first thing that happens when you start to run and you start to get, like, tired? When you start out, you have really good posture. You're running, and you're, like, you're striding, you're going. And then, for me, 500 yards later, I'm like, I'm tired. I don't want to keep going. It's too much energy to keep this arm up in the air. I'll just let this one hang. You ever done that? You're running. You're like, that's just, I'm not going to keep that one up. And you start, it starts flailing like this. You're running. And you're like, my knee hurts. So I'm going to start favoring my knee. So you start limping. And you're running and you're limping. And your path is not straight anymore because you don't have the energy to avoid obstacles. You're like, kids are in the way. I don't care. Get out of my way. Like puddles. I'll run through puddles. I'll run through seagulls, whatever. Just, I'm not getting out of the way of anything. 
and you have no straight paths or level path and your arms are filling, what happens next? You just stop. You're like, okay, that was 600 yards. That was really good. I mean, that was, and then you just walk it out. And that's where these Hebrew Christians were. They were running and they were feeling the pressure all around them. And they're like, I'm so tired. This is so hard. Well, you know what? I'm going to let this arm hang. It's just flailing out there. This knee, I'm going to start favoring this knee. And the writer goes, no, strengthen your feeble hands. Strengthen those weak knees. Make level paths for yourself still. Keep on running. Now, remember, these were Hebrews. These were people that knew the Old Testament. So what he does, he draws their mind upward to Isaiah, who, when Isaiah wrote, he was writing to people who were filling, who were undergoing the very discipline of God themselves. And Isaiah encouraged the people of Israel, who were going through discipline of God, because they were disobedient, but they were going through discipline. So he draws their mind to Isaiah, to Isaiah chapter 35. And he quotes this. This is what this is, a quote from Isaiah. It says this, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, those that want to quit, those that want, I I can't take this anymore. Say to them, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come through with vengeance, with the recompense of God, and he will come and save you. Then it skips to verse 10. Look at this. This is where he draws, Isaiah draws their mind to. This is what the Hebrew writer was doing too. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing with everlasting joy on their heads, and they shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. See how he draws their mind there? Listen, keep running. You're running for Zion. You're running for heaven. You're running for a great goal before you. Keep running. Make your path straight. Make, firm up your arms and your knees that are weak. Put your hope in the work of God. He is working on you. He is purifying you. You're going through persecution and some discipline, but God is with you. That's what he's doing. And next he says this in verse 14. Now pursue peace. Pursue peace with people and a holiness before God. So now, what he does is this. You guys remember those two things that, the two reasons why God allows uh, pers- or persecution or his discipline in our lives? Two reasons. It's the holiness. Remember verse 10? that we may be partakers of his holiness. And then in verse 11, that we would have the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So what the author here is doing is this. Because God is working in you, holiness and peace, pursue holiness and peace. Pursue what God is pursuing in you. What is God pursuing in your life? Well, here, namely, he's pursuing, pursuing your holiness. And he's also pursuing your peace. So guess what you and I are to do? Pursue that which Christ is pursuing in us. Run after the things that God is doing in us. Paul in Philippians 3, when he talks about his race, says the exact same thing. In Philippians 3.12, Paul's describing his own race, and he says this, not that I've already attained, or I'm already perfected, but I press on. He goes on to say, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But then he says this, this is why I do it. Why do you keep running, Paul? This is why. That I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. I want to lay hold of why Jesus laid hold of me. Why did Christ lay hold of me, as Paul would say, on on the Damascus road? Why did Christ knock me off my horse? Why did Christ blind me? Why did he lay hold of me? I want to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. The call in my life, my salvation, my peace, my holiness, I want to pursue why Christ has pursued me. It's exactly what the Hebrews writer is doing here. Pursue what God is pursuing in you. The things that God is pursuing in you, you pursue those very things. Paul, at the end of his life, when he stood before King Agrippa, he said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I kept pursuing what Christ pursued me for. The reason why Christ saved me, I kept pursuing that. The reason why Christ called me, I kept pursuing that. I kept doing it. I kept on going. So the writer here says this, pursue what Christ is pursuing in you. And now comes the warning. The warning happens in verses 15 through 17. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest any fornicator or profane person like Esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Here's the warning. Don't be an Esau. 
That's the warning. That's what the warning of the Hebrews write. Don't be like him. Don't be like Esau. Now, the author's focus, as we talked about last week, as, as it says here in Hebrews chapter 12, is on the fact that we're sons. We're sons of God. All of us are sons. Why? Because sons get the inheritance. We all get the inheritance of God. So we're all sons, ladies included. We're all sons, okay? It's like we're the bride of Christ, man. That's kind of weird, but we're brides. Girls, we're sons, Okay? So girls, were sons and guys, we're sons of God, meaning we get God's inheritance, we get all of his blessing, but how do we know we're sons of God? Because he disciplines us, right? It says that the only people that he disciplines are his sons, and if he doesn't discipline you, you're illegitimate and you're not a son. Isn't that funny? Like, how do we know we're sons? Because God spanks me, because God disciplines me. Well, we talked about last week, but that punishment's removed. Only the peaceable fruit remains. So God disciplines us, why? Because we're his, we're his sons. Now... The sons got the birthright. The firstborn son, the oldest, got the bulk of the family's wealth and was the main recipient of the father's inheritance. And we're sons of God. We get the privileges and his blessings, but also the pain of his discipline, both for our good. And remember, and this is what it does here, remember that Esau was a son. Esau was the firstborn son. And the writer says, don't be a son like Esau. Don't be that kind of firstborn son. Don't be that sort of son. The warning was, don't be like Esau. Do you guys remember the story of Esau? Esau was born first from Isaac and Rebekah, and, and Rebekah had twins, and Esau came out first, and Jacob was grabbing onto Esau's ankle. Comes out, and they both grew up, and Jacob loved to cook food, and Esau loved to hunt, and Esau was hairy. You know you're hairy when they just name you Red and Harry. You know, that's what Esau means. Like, he's red and hairy. Harry. Red, you know, that's his name. So you know you're hairy when that happens. So he's hairy, he loves to hunt. He goes out and hunts and he comes back in and it says that he is, he's famished. He walks into his brother's house and Jacob is like just cooking soup. You know when soup, how it just, the aroma of soup just lasts, goes everywhere. And so he walks in, his brother's cooking this really good soup and he goes, bro, I'm so hungry. I'm gonna die. Give me a bowl of soup. And Jacob, tricky guy, a whole different sermon. The, the, the focus here is on Esau. But anyways, he says, sell me your God-given birthright, and I'll give you a bowl of soup. And Esau, it says in the text, doesn't even think twice about it. He goes, oh, yeah, cool. Here it is. No big deal. He actually says this. What good is a birthright if I'm going to die? It's like, I don't know if you've ever exaggerated like that before. Like, I'm so hungry, I'm going to die. Give me food now. Well, sell me your birthright. What good is that? I'm going to die. Have my birthright. And so he does. And he, he trades it out. And so the text here says this. Don't be like him who sold his birthright as a firstborn son for a, and I love what the author uses, a morsel of food. Just a morsel of food. A bowl of soup. Why? Because he was hungry. That's why. Simple. It's just because he was hungry. The Bible calls Esau godless, which also means secular. He was a person focused on the immediate who was willing to give up the things of God for top ramen. Like cup of noodle? Yeah, I'm in. Sell my soul? Okay. It's like, it's so, so, we look at him and we're like, so lame. That is so lame. Now, what Esau said to Jacob was, if, what good is a birthright if I'm dead? He was so wrapped up in the immediate. He was so wrapped up in the here and now. His, the condemnation of Esau was he had a total lack of care for anything spiritual. He didn't care about it. He paid more attention to his flesh than the things of God. Now, have you ever stopped and thought about how much you listen to your flesh? How much you listen to your body? Like, I'm hungry, feed me. I'm thirsty, I want water. I I want coffee, I'm tired, lay down, take a nap, don't sit there, that place isn't cool, go here, take this route, I don't wanna be around these people, I wanna be, I mean, how many times we listen to our flesh? And Esau was so in tune with his flesh that he cared nothing about the spiritual and everything about the physical, where he became an utter slave to his flesh and his desires, and he sold out for a bowl of soup. Now, the cool thing, I think the brilliance of the writer here in Hebrews is that it's subtle. That's what he's trying to get at. It's subtle. What's the most basic thing to life? Food almost, right? Right? Is there anything not more basic than food? Food. One of the basic things in life, there's several basic things in life, but just like he was selling out for something so subtle. He was selling out for food. And that's the brilliance of the text here. It's saying that he sold out. We can sell out. We could compromise without 
even knowing it. We can sell out for a bowl of soup. We can walk away from God and drift from God for the basic things of life. We can be choosing food over God or fun over God or comfort over God. You see, the, 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 the people, the, the, these Hebrew Christians that were going under persecution just wanted something very basic, the pain to go away. Has you ever felt pain before? What do you do when you feel pain? Advil, right? Or something. Go to the doctor. Make this pain stop. Make the pain go away. That's basic. And all these people wanted to do, these Hebrew Christians, was like, did you make the pain stop? And what he was saying to them is, listen, don't sell out for something as basic. Be careful. Because by you getting relief, by you getting comfort, by you getting food, you could be walking away from the grace of God. Don't do that. That's the warning. Don't be like that. Now, also note in verse 17 the finality of Esau's decision. It was, it was pretty final. At the end of, of um, the, the story, when he sells his birthright, he goes, and he didn't even care anything about his birthright until the very end, and his, his dad was going to die. His dad was dying. And as his dad was dying, he's like, okay, I guess I, I, I'll care about my birthright again. So he goes and tries to get his birthright, and then trickery, a whole different sermon, but tricks him out of his birthright again. And then he says here, it says, we know afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Now, don't get this wrong. That word repentance means change of mind. He could not change his dad's mind, Isaac's mind. He wanted the inheritance. He couldn't change his mind, though he sought it with tears. What this speaks of is the finality of our decisions. If you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 10, it says that um, a worthless fly can ruin the perfumer's oil. Like this perfumer's oil, that would, that would cost so much money, sometimes a dowry. I mean, it was worth life savings. A worthless little fly can fly into your perfumer's oil and spoil the whole thing. And the exhortation is this, be careful because one meaningless little thing can have like this almost final finality to it that you, that you can't reverse. Be careful. Don't be an Esau. Don't do it. Now, seems like he's changing gears, but he doesn't. He now takes us to two mountains. He takes us to this landscape of two different mountains. You got Mount Sinai and Mount um, Zion, okay? So these two different mountains. And what he's talking about here is two fundamentally different approaches to life in God. Two totally different approaches to life in God. Two different ways of viewing how we relate to God. And the, he paints this landscape with these mountains and he says, one of them you have not come to, but one of them you have come to. So the first one, Sinai, the one that you have not come to, he says, is Mount Sinai where Israel received the law of God. So he shows them this. He says, you have not come to this mountain. Now, God's presence was on this mountain. God spoke on this mountain. A lot of us will go to the mountains to get away from the world and get with the Lord and want a mountaintop experience. There's that expression. And we're like, Lord, just show yourself to us. Just manifest yourself. Speak to me. Well, they got all of that on Mount Sinai, and they were totally afraid. They were flipping out. They were freaked out. They were undone. The experience was totally terrifying and totally frightening. And the way that this author writes this is by saying that there were seven negative images in Sinai. Look at the seven. Number one, you have not come to the mountain that may be touched. That was a physical mountain burning with fire and blackness and darkness and a tempest, sound of a trumpet, voice of speaking words. He uses this to paint in their mind how gnarly this mountain was. It was dark and this thunder roared, roared out from it in a trumpet blast and God spoke and they said, enough, we can't handle it. Now, as they went to this mountain, it was both visible and audible. They heard it and they saw it. Even their mediator, Moses, was exceedingly afraid and trembling. They were so afraid, they said, God, stop keep your distance. There was no intimacy. There was no kumbaya. There was no, I can't wait to get to the mountain and be with God. There was like, stop, keep your boundary, God. Don't, we're going we're gonna to shatter underneath the pressure of it. We can't handle it. Now, here's the point. 
The unmediated presence and nearness of God is horrific. The unmediated presence and nearness of God is terrifying. Every place the unmediated presence of God comes close, comes to a place or a space, it's fatal to go near it. Even Moses was afraid to go to that mountain. Their mediator was trembling with fear. Every single person in the Bible who ever gets near God's presence is totally shaken to the core. At the end of the book of Job, when Job hears the Lord speak and he sees the Lord finally at the end of Job, this is what Job says. I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself. I despise myself. And I repent in dust and ashes. He wasn't like, yes, Lord, that's awesome. I got to see you. He was like, I am undone and I fall to the dust. I fall to the ground. When Isaiah sees the Lord, high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. And we sing a wonderful song about it, but Isaiah was not singing that song. Isaiah was singing this song. I, woe is me for I am undone. What if we wrote that into that song? Woe is me, I am undone. I cannot handle the unmediated presence of God. He was being shaken apart because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. My eyes saw him and I am undone. The unmediated presence of God is scary. Why? Well, why is the presence of God so shattering and so overwhelming? Because we see ourselves for who we really are. We see our unbearable smallness and our unbearable sinfulness. When anyone gets in the presence of God, they see that every approach to God by their own means, no matter how moral or thought out, is just so stupid. It's like, well, I'm going to get to God this way. I'm going to get to God that way. You stand before God, all that falls away. You're undone. You're like, wait, I I, I didn't mean that. The people that that are... speaking blasphemy and saying things today, they will stand before God one day with their feeble attempts to reach God and they will be undone. No one comes in cavalier to the presence of God. Everyone is totally shaken to the core. And that's the point. The unmediated presence of God is that way. But the author says this, we have not come to this mountain. We've come to a totally different mountain. We come to a mountain that he describes as Mount Zion. The city of many names. The city where the architect and the builder is God. Now, let me give you a summation of the Bible really fast. The Bible starts in a garden and it ends in a city. That's the Bible in a nutshell, okay? Starts in a garden and then God's making a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and it's going to be a city. It's going to be the city of God, Mount Zion, and there's going to be tons of people there and it's going to be awesome and we get a little glimpse of what that looks like right here. Here we see the Tear, the, the joys of Mount Zion set over the terrors of Mount Sinai. The joys of Mount Zion set over and against the terrors of Mount Sinai. Now, the author, because he's so brilliant, he balances seven negatives with seven positives. It's a good sermon, right? Like he, 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 he's, a good, he's a good sermon. He's writing this sermon. He's like, listen, seven and seven. We like that kind of sermon. So seven against seven. Here they are. You've come to this. Now, not these seven. You've come to this seven. The heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to an innumerable company of angels in festal gathering. You've, and fest, okay, we'll get to that in a second, sorry. The, the church of the firstborn. You've come to God, the judge of all. The spirits of just men made perfect. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. The blood of Christ that speaks better things than that of Abel. He goes, you have not come to this dark mountain. You've come to this. Here's the atmosphere. This atmosphere of this mountain is not frightening. It's festive. It's not fearful. It's fun. It's not a funeral. It's like a wedding. It's a party. That word, innumerable company of angels and festal gathering, that word literally means that there was a party going on. That these angels who've been around a very long time that probably know how to dance really well, These angels that have been there, that have seen the glory of God, are just throwing a massive party. This is the mountain that you want to go to. There is a choice. Like, I want that mountain right there. That looks like fun. Heaven's a party. That's why I think sometimes, I love when we worship sometimes, and this is not manufactured. It's just like God's presence falls, and it becomes like a party in here. 
Like you're thinking the usher's gonna bring punch bowls to the front or something. <laughs> like it's party, t- and it's just like, it's like a party. You can't help but like move your feet, even if you're not coordinated like me. I'm just like, you kind of just, I don't know, you start doing something. Like start moving around, you're like, man, this is like a party in here. That's the presence of God. And it's like that. And it says that you've come, there's no darkness, there's no fear here. Instead of a trembling congregation gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, we see an assembly of partying angels and our mediator, Jesus Christ. The unapproachability of God is contrasted with the full access to the presence of God and Jesus, whose blood speaks better words than Abel. That's the mountain that he says, you've come to that mountain, not this mountain here. You've come to this mountain. Now, why does the writer of Hebrews do this? Why is he bringing this landscape of two mountains? Why does he go, hey, don't be an able, endure the discipline of God, keep running. Oh, these two mountains. It seems random and it's not at all. What he's speaking about here is this. Here's why he's doing this. These mountains represent two ways of viewing relationship with God. Two ways that we view our relationship with God. Remember, the goal of Hebrews, the whole goal of this whole book, we're almost about to wrap it up, but the whole goal of the whole book we've been in for almost two years is this. Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Aaron. Consequently, he's a better messenger, a better mediator, a better leader, and a better priest that offers better promises, a better sanctuary sealed by a better sacrifice, and achieves far better results. He's better. And so one of the keys to understanding this section in verses 18 and 22 is this. You have not come, and you have come. These two verbs are the same verb. In Greek, they're very significant. It's a very significant verb. It means this, your fundamental spiritual approach to God in life. It's a very loaded verb. The author uses this verb a lot throughout this book. In Hebrews 10, he says, he uses this verb this way. Let us draw near, that verb, draw near to God with full assurance of faith. Let us therefore come boldly, same verb, under the throne of grace with confidence. He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come, same verb, to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Same verb. He's saying this. You have not approached God this way. You have approached God this way. The end of the book, for the last time, he compares these two ways of approaching God. There's two ways here, and I bring them before you, and I put them to bear on our hearts and our minds. The first way is an earthly way. The first way is a way that is exemplified by a mountain that can be touched. You see how it says that? The mountain can be touched, and it's darkness, storm, trumpet, and a voice. You can see it, you can hear it, you can touch it. It's a life that's lived in an earthly way. Basically a life like the life of Esau, who lived for the immediate. What he can hear, what he can touch, what he can eat. Basically a life centered on the here and now. That's one way of life. Centered on the here and now. This sort of life, if you live this sort of life, where you're focused on right here, right now, all the time, one day you will stand before God and you will be shaken to the core. You will stand before God and you will fear before a holy God. This is a life that either the world or ultimately God will shake you to the core. There's no mediator in this way of life. There's no one to stand between you and God. If you plan one day to stand before God and say your mediator is your pastor, be afraid. If your mediator is religion, be afraid. If your mediator is your morality, I've set my moral code and my moral rules and I've tried my best to live by them. A lot of people do that. Be afraid. If your, mora- if, your, if your way to God is your education, be afraid. If it's charity work or who you are or what you've done, be afraid. When the children of Israel were at the foot of Mount Sinai and the presence of God fell, they were not clamoring to get to the top to tell God who they were and what they've done. They were shaken to the core. And they were shattering and they were coming apart and they said, stop it. Moses, get up there. Tell them to stop. We can't handle it anymore. Even Moses was shaking in fear. This approach to life will leave you shaken. If you build your life in this world, on things in this world, this world will be shaken. That's what this whole chapter is talking about. This world will be shaken and consequently you'll be shaken because God's going to shake this world. And if you build your life in this world, it'll shake you. And you guys know If you've lived in this world long enough, this world has a way of doing that as well. This world has a way of shaking you down to the core. If you build your life on this world and the things of this world, God is going to judge it. He's going to shake it. So consequently, you will be shaken. 
if you build your life on beauty, beautiful places, beautiful things, beautiful people, then when beauty fades, it won't just bum you out. It will leave you depressed and consumed with doing something about it. And it will ruin you. If you build your life on having money, economic downturn won't just be hard. It'll shake you to the core. If you build your life on finding the right person, the one, when you're rejected, it won't just be hard. It'll be fatal. It'll be suicidal. Why? Because you're building your life on things this earth, things that can be shaken. That's the first approach to life. Based on anything other, no matter how good it is, than this way of life. You have not come to that, but you have come to this. You've come to a heavenly way. Now notice, it's a heavenly Jerusalem. It's the firstborn of those whose names are written in heaven. It's Jesus Christ, the mediator, the one who gets us in and gets us close to God. There was one mediator, First Timothy says. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And God sees to it that we don't build our life or our identity on anything other than Jesus. That we hope in nothing else, that we boast in nothing else, that our aim and our goal is nothing else. Why? Because there is a final judgment coming, a shaking coming. And if you build your life on something other than Jesus Christ, no matter how good it seems to be, you will be shaken and ruined. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples with this power and authority. He says he has power and authority to preach the gospel. They were to preach the gospel. And then they were to heal the sick. And they had the authority to cast out demons. Must have been fun. Now, it says they go out and they have a great time casting out demons left and right, doing all these great things. And they come back rejoicing, talking about how much fun it is. And if you've ever read the gospel narratives, you know that these guys are, are hooligans a lot of the times. They're always arguing about who is great and who is awesome. So you can totally, you can totally see that they come back going, oh my gosh, who's the greatest demon caster out or ever? Like, I am, no, I am. Remember that one demon, WWF, just clothesline. Remember that demon I threw from the roof? Remember that demon I drop kicked? Did you see that one time where I, it was like Ghostbusters and like the big old marshmallow man, I just went, but you know, whatever. And they're just talking, who's the best? And they're just rejoicing that they were casting out demons left and right. And then Jesus says, whoa, 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 calm down. What does he tell him? He says this to them. He responds in verse 20, do not rejoice in this. Don't re- I mean, that sounds like a great thing to rejoice in, right? I mean, casting out demons is an awesome thing. And you, you want to, re- after you're done casting out demons, you're like, wow, I want to rejoice. But Jesus says, no, 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 don't rejoice in that. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your name, Why? Why rejoice that your names are written in heaven? He's saying, don't get your identity from something that you can do. Don't get your identity from a, from a name that you can make for yourself. Don't be known as the demon caster outer guy. Don't do that. Don't get your sense of belonging from something like that. Don't start saying, I'm so-and-so, the one with the powerful ministry. I'm so-and-so, the one with the perfect marriage. I'm so-and-so, the one with the secure job. And that's kind of, you bring, you, you, you bring yourself to this happy place. So you're like, oh, at least my job's secure. Don't do that. Don't make a name for yourself and say, oh, I'm so-and-so because I made a name for myself. I'm so-and-so because I have a lot of friends. Or I go to the best church. Or I live in the best place in the world. Don't do that. Don't find your identity in things that you have or even things that you don't have. Why? Because next time you go to cast out a demon, it might not come out. You go to cast a demon, and oh, my, I'm the demon caster out of guy. Come out. And they actually experienced that. Do you guys remember that? Come out. Why couldn't we get it out? Don't base your identity on something like that. Don't you dare start building your life and identity on something that can be shaken or taken from you. I have the perfect this or the best that. That can be taken from you. Those of you guys that know that have had things taken from you, situations in life where it's left you just shaken to the core, you're like, I, th- I base my life on this thing and now it's gone. Jesus says, don't base your life on that thing. Don't base your life on things that can be shaken. Rather, rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Or said differently in our text today, you have come to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The unshakable kingdom. The kingdom that will not be moved. Put all of your hope there. Put everything there. And once you do, once you live for that, then the peaceable fruit of righteousness comes. 
and the holiness of God comes. And that joyful mountain that's just a party, you get a piece of that today. You get to live joyfully today. When we build our life on our, and our identity on an unshakable kingdom, we don't build our life on having money. We can be generous and free from fear. We don't have to build our life on finding the right person because we know that Jesus is enough and we can trust him completely with our relationships. And beauty, we can enjoy beauty and we keep it in its proper place. Actually, we can even live somewhere a little less desirable if God would have us because like Abraham, we are waiting for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Yeah, I could, I could God's calling me there. I could live there. Is it hard to live there? Yeah, I could live there though. You know why? Because I'm living for a city whose architect and builder is God, and it's way more beautiful in that city. So I can live here, but for there, for the glory of God. Do you see that? Don't build your life on the things of this world. Don't do that. And the final warning comes in verse 25 through 29. Hebrews 25 says, See to it, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. Don't refuse him who is speaking. Now, this is the rhetorical climax of the book. This is actually the fifth warning in the book of Hebrews. Don't refuse. That word means don't make excuses. It's the same word used when Jesus tells a parable of the, uh, of, of the wedding where people were invited to the wedding and they made excuses not to come to the wedding feast. Don't make excuses. Well, I'm not really following God right now because I'm, I'm hungry, because I'm tired, because it, it hurts, because when I do, I just get beat up every single time. Don't make excuses. Well, I'm not really obeying the word of God right now because because of this relationship or that situation. Don't refuse him who speaks. Now, who's speaking? Who's speaking? Now, this here takes us full circle to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. Don't refuse him who speaks. Who's speaking? And the author brings you right to the beginning of a sermon. Who's speaking? Jesus is speaking. And what is he speaking? Look at verse 24 in our text. The blood of Christ speaks better things than that of Abel. The blood of Christ speaks, and it speaks better things than that of Abel. Now, do you guys remember the count of Cain and Abel? We, have, we went through Abel. Abel's right there up on the wall. Now, Cain was his brother. Cain and Abel, the, the first kind of kids, and the first family, um, Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, God came to Adam and Eve in the garden and go, what have you done? And Adam kind of goes, uh, well, the woman. Who told you you were naked? Um, well, the woman that you gave me. And the woman goes, well, the serpent. Well, you see how progressive sin is and how the wrath of sin just takes over you because what, what happens when God goes to Cain and when God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's sacrifice. And Cain got angry and killed Abel. And God goes to Cain and goes, what have you done? Where's your brother? And he goes, what? I'm not my brother's keeper. See how ugly sin got just in one generation? Just like, why are you coming in? Why are you asking me that question? I'm not my brother's keeper. Why are you asking me that? And then this is what God says to Cain. He said, Genesis 4.10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The blood of Abel spoke something to God. It cries out. Now, this has happens throughout the Bible when, when God goes to um, Sodom and Gomorrah. He tells Abraham, go to Sodom and Gomorrah because of the outcry of injustice against it. Because of the outcry. The, it was the sin and the injustice of Sodom and Gomorrah was crying out from the ground to God. And God can't ignore sin. God can't ignore it. He can't ignore injustice. He can't let sin go. He can't just go, oh, no big deal. You sin, no big deal. He can't do that because all sin is sin against God. He's always the most offended party. And the blood of the innocent, in a sense, cries out to God for justice. What Abel's blood was crying out was this, justice. I was slain unjustly and justice cries out from the ground. Now, cries out to God, and so God must do something about it. But what does he do? How does he react? What can God do? How can God, in his justice, remain just, but justify us? Because he's merciful, but he's holy. He's gracious, but he's just. How can he do that without just wiping everyone off the face of the earth? How does God do it? 
How does he do it? The blood of Christ. That's how he does it. Because what happens years later is Jesus would be born. And he would enter a whole nation of men like Cain. He would enter into a whole nation of Cain's who offered their religious sacrifice just like Cain did but all the while held bitterness and hatred in their heart. And Jesus came to his own brothers in a sense. John says that he came to his own and his own knew him not. He would come to his own brothers who were caned. And what did they do? They killed him. They killed Jesus. He died as the ultimate Abel. He died as the better than Abel. He died as the most beautiful Abel, who was absolutely innocent and died as a victim of injustice. Even Pilate goes, I wash my hands of his, of his blood. I see nothing wrong with him. I see no injustice in him. I wash my hands. I didn't do this. And they said, let his blood be on us and our kids. There's nothing wrong with him. And the injustice of man and injustice of Cain killed the ultimate Abel. But he died not only as a victim of injustice, but he died by design. Jesus died by design. He died as our substitute in our place to pay the penalty of our injustices. Christ's blood cries out that the justice has been met by his sacrifice. God remains just while justifying us. The blood of Christ now cries out, forgiven. It is finished, paid in full. Actually, 1 John 1.9 a, a verse that just blows my mind. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful and just. It doesn't say he's faithful and merciful. He's faithful and gracious. He's faithful and kind, though he is all those things, but faithful and just. Why? Because Christ's perfect life and his perfect sacrifice satisfied the wrath of God that when we believe in Christ Jesus, his blood now speaks justified, forgiven, and he, makes to, he ever lives to make intercession for us. Notice it, that we're forgiven and the blood of Christ speaks better things than the blood of Abel. It speaks that you and I are forgiven. That the, the wrath and the penalty was paid for. Now, Closing up, the final warning happens here in verse 25 through 29. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God an acceptable worship within with the reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Now check this out. Those who trust in Jesus Christ can be a citizen of that unshakable kingdom today. They can live an unshakable life today. How? By the blood of Jesus Christ. When Christ hung on the cross, the Bible says that he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then it says, and then Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he gave up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks split. What was going on? Just special effects of the cross? Like if I throw this in, this will make it real dramatic. No, it's just speaking something. Christ was being shaken. Christ was being judged for you. Christ took the judgment and be, he was shook for you that you and I can inherit a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's what Jesus was doing for us on our behalf. When we believe in him, we can be a citizen of a kingdom that cannot be shaken because he was shaken for us. Actually, if you study the cross and if you study church history, you'll see that a lot of the followers of Jesus, the martyrs of Jesus, seemingly died a, like a more, went to their death better than Jesus did. When Jesus went to his death, we saw in the Garden of Gethsemane that he was shook. He was so utterly consumed and terrified that he didn't even make it to the garden. He fell on his face and he prayed, God, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but you will. He was shaken so bad that the doctor looks at he sweat blood. 
He was so overwhelmed. He prayed three different times, let this cup pass from me. And he went to the cross for us. And you see that, and you see other martyrs going, kill me. Send me to the lions. Run me through with a sword. I will not deny my Lord. I am going to inherit a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Why? Jesus must have died a different kind of death than we die. He died a death where he took on the wrath of God. And we die a death where we inherit the kingdom of God. We, we, get, we go through life and death totally different. Why? Because Jesus was sh- shaken for us. He was judged for us. And so therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, it says, let, let us offer to God acceptable worship. You know what that means? He, uh, Romans 12, acceptable worship is what? Our lives. If you're afraid of stepping out in faith, if you're afraid of like doing something for fear of death, or fear of like, I, I don't know what if I fail, you are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. If you feel like your world is shaking, listen, you are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so we should live our lives with reverent awe and fear and acceptable worship because God is a consuming fire. Psalm 125, we could be like this. Psalm 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. That heavenly mountain, that one with the, the joy, it's immovable, it can't be moved. It will be like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountain surrounded Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time and forever. That is the kingdom that we're inheriting. So keep running, don't give up, don't quit, and let the f- consuming love of God, our consuming fire of God, consume your life, the dross, the junk, confess it, get right with God, and run hard for Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. So humbled by it, Lord. We thank you that we are inheriting a kingdom that cannot be moved. Something that you've done, Lord. You were shaken for us. You were judged for us that we can inherit this kingdom. Thank you, God. Lord, would you draw those that are just weak today? You said, come to me all who are weak and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Draw those who have not come to you as their mediator. Their mediator is this church, or their mediator is their, their morals, or their family, or whatever. Lord, I pray that they would trust in Jesus for their salvation. Lord, would you fill us with the confidence that comes from inheriting this kingdom? May we live for it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.